Welcome to Acquisitions Anonymous. I'm Heather Anderson. And today, Bill and I got together and talked about one of my favorite industries, managed service providers. Uh, It is a kind of a small one. Um, We got into, you know, what makes a good MSP versus not, how old they generally are, what kinds of folks generally are selling them. It was a pretty good discussion. So hopefully you'll enjoy it as well. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Today's sponsor is Employer Flexible. And what Employer Flexible does is really function as a fractional HR department for your company or business. Um, I've used them numerous times in putting together my companies. I've used them when I bought companies. I've used them when I started from scratch. And basically, when you're moving quickly or when you don't want to spend the time putting together your own HR department, benefits, all that kind of stuff, and you want to get the scale of being part of a larger group, you can reach out to Employer Flexible. And what Employer Flexible does is give you that buying power as if you're you're part of a bigger group and all that kind of stuff. And for me, I love working with them for numerous reasons. One is I know the owners and a lot of the staff and they've always treated me super good. And then the second thing is I hate HR. <laughs> like I don't enjoy it at all. Uh, and this way I can know it gets done right. Uh, I get the benefits of having a big fully staffed HR department and the flexibility of having a, a vendor like Employer Flexible being there as a partner throughout my journey and making sure that everybody I work with is happy, taken care of, and we can focus on what really matters in our business, which is take care of our customers. So uh, you can find their contact details, locations of their very off- various offices, as well as more details on how they will help your business by going to employerflexible.com. And again, that's employerflexible.com. And thanks to them for sponsoring today's episode. Hey, Bill, good to see you. Yes, good to be back. Yeah. So what are we going to look at today? What are we going to talk about today? Well, b- before we get started, I just, I came in hot from something else. And I don't know, we talked a little before we got on. Like some of these, you know, like I prep for an hour before, and then sometimes I'll like hop out of another meeting and it's like, boom, we're recording Acquisitions Anonymous. <laughs> so I am, I am making the transition today. Okay. You get your head in the game. I, I told uh, you, Bill, I, I didn't schedule anything an hour before this, be- so I wouldn't be like that because that's hard for me sometimes to switch from whatever it is I'm doing to, you know, looking at this deal. I have I look at a lot of deals. That's the other thing that goes on in my brain is I look at so many deals with my clients that sometimes I get them, you know, the, the details of them intermixed in my head and wait, wait, no, that's not that one. That's this one. So uh, I got to I got to have my focus. How how many new new to you deals would you say you see every week? I probably see well about five under LOI, so that, that I'll spend the most time on those. But I will also look at a lot of pre LOI, so I'd say probably another five or six pre LOI, so at least ten every week. And so yes, you can see where they kind of start to merge together if they're similar, or they have some little quirk about them that's that's unique or 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 similar to something else. Uh, but it's a lot of deals, lots. Yeah. Do people usually come to you and Viso like with an LOI or before or pre-LOI? I invite them to do both. So obviously I really want them to call me. I want them to make me the first call when they have a signed LOI so that I can, I don't want them to go to different banks and me. I want me to do all the bank shopping for them. But I, as a service, I look at pre-LOI to help them sort of figure out what's bankable. It's really hard to submit an LOI if you're not sure you can get financing. And I think, you know, the current environment has made that even more difficult. Banks are, you know, it's tight. Credit is tighter, period. Uh, And Mm -hmm. so it's just a good idea to kind of preview before you submit the LOI, make sure there's nothing 
that's not financeable in what you're offering. So I do that too. I see that an awful lot where people will make an offer to a, to a seller. They'll get all fired up. They're like, okay, I like this deal. I'll make an offer to a seller. They'll write an LOI and then they'll go, okay, now I got to get it financed. Right. And they'll go to get it financed. And it's like, dude, like you have no chance. Like this, this doesn't work unless you have all equity, you're not going to be able to do this. Uh, and right. then the buyer ends up in this really awkward position where they got to go like back to the seller and go, actually, I'm a moron. I can't pay you that. And now the seller's all bummed out because they had gotten excited. And it just, it really puts you in a really bad spot at the very beginning of your process. Absolutely. It is absolutely the best practice is to make sure it's financeable first. And I think that's what's unique about Viso. I can tell you out of, you know, 15 banks, is it financeable? If you just go to one bank at a time, one bank might say yes, another bank might say no. And and that variance between what banks like and don't like has gotten more pronounced in the last year. And especially I would say the last six months as rates have increased and banks have just gotten tighter for a variety of reasons, you know, kind of specific to banks. That has always really surprised me because you think people tend to think of banks as a commodity, right? Like they're selling money. And, and you just kind of compete based on rate, like whoever wants to sell money at the lowest price. But it's blown me away. So we're in, we're in market right now for a, a asset-backed refinance, which I mm-hmm. talked to you about. And we have talked to some people and they're like, like told them the exact same facts, exact same everything. And some banks are like, hell yeah, we want that credit. Some banks are like, that's disgusting. Don't ever call me again. (laughs) (laughs) But you said it in your own way. Yeah, it is. It is exactly like that. Some will, what, you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure. That is actually happening in banking even more pronounced now than it ever has been. But yeah, the the credit appetites are all uh, very, very different. Really depends on a lot of things that are going on within a bank, not just on the loan side, but on their deposit side, whether they're trying to grow if they favor a particular industry. And, and honestly, I tell people all the time, if even just one person in that bank got burned on a deal before, and it could be a long time ago, if, you're, if your deal has any, it, it reminds them of that situation in any way, shape or form, that bank is out for you. <laughs> it's, and that's just so, the way so it is. This is so ridiculous. It's so true. And I run into it in e-commerce, right? So like, we sell dog supplements. We're branded. We make our own dog supplements. I have run into lenders that like in 2015, like did a bad deal on like a, like, you know, I don't know, chairs.com that sold a bunch of chairs under everyone else's brand. And I'm like, that is not the same. Like, just cause this is e-commerce, like you can't paint this whole thing as e-commerce, like these guys were drop shipping heavy chairs in 2015 and were probably idiots. Like we're selling high margin branded dog supplements in 2023. Like this is not the same. And it doesn't matter what you say. Like they're out. They're just, they never can do it again. That's right. Exactly. It's just, it's just, you fell into a bucket that reminded him of that chair thing and that's it. It's over. The, the conversation has ended. So yeah, it is really, really interesting and not really like the smartest way to make credit decisions. But, you know, I always say banks are just people too. It's not like there's this great, <laughs> machine, you know, they're just, they're businesses with a bunch of people and those people are all like, trying to do the best they can make decisions, but they're, they're people, they're flawed. Banks are is. people too. That should be your, your catchphrase. <laughs> banks are people too. 
<laughs> I'm the Banks only one sympathetic to them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Banks are made of people too. It's true. So, I mean, I think, I think the big lesson for me is like you run into these lenders and like tons of them will reject you for stupid reasons, like because they dated a redheaded girl once and you're red, you look redheaded and they don't want anything to do with it because they got bad memories. They'll reject you for that reason. They'll reject you because, oh, we already have too much exposure to your industry in our book. We don't want any more. And you're yeah. like, well, that's not fair. You're telling me you like it, but you just don't, you can't have any more of it. And they're like, sorry. Um, or, you know, there's also all these bank idiosyncratic reasons where people won't want your credit. And so my experience has been, you just got to go wide uh, when mm-hmm. borrowing. And that's what I try to do for my clients. It, I go wide, but I also, I'm talking to 15 banks every week uh, about what I'm working on. And so I have a little bit better, you know, my fingers are on the pulse of what they currently like. And I mean, it's current, like one bank the next week might say, no, no more of that now. <laughs> Where last week yeah. it was good. So yeah, that is how, that is the reason I exist as a business. It's crazy. Yeah, it's it's valuable. Um, okay, well, so much for the unsponsored Viso post. I'm going to send you a bill for that. Heather. <laughs> uh, but uh, all right, we've we've got a deal. Um, would you, would you like me to get into it? Yeah, please. All right, you're you're technically the host, so I have to ask your permission. <laughs> oh, I grant you that permission. All right, very good. Uh, okay, let's let me share this out for our people watching us on YouTube. Plug to watch us on YouTube, by the way. You get to see yeah. uh, our ugly mugs uh, and our crazy facial expressions. Um, so uh, this one's this one's cool because this is an industry that's been hot lately. It is a Kansas MSP managed service provider with strong recurring revenue. Uh, it has revenue of about a million bucks. It has EBITDA of one hundred twenty thousand. And cash flow of two hundred forty-two thousand, which is interesting. It's been around since two thousand eight, so fifteen years old. They've got fifty thousand dollars of furniture, fixtures, and equipment, and they're asking seven hundred twenty-eight thousand dollars exactly, uh, which is, I guess, roughly three times, right? Seven twenty-eight. Well, uh, by six times EBITDA, if you count that. Six yeah. times EBITDA exactly. It literally three point zero zero eight times. Cash flow. So I wonder how they came up with that. <laughs> um, okay. So it is an excellent managed service provider in Overland Park, Kansas. It has strong contractually recurring revenue. They're projecting $750,000 of recurring revenue for 2023. So that tells me about 75% of revenue mm-hmm. is contractually recurring. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also says 98% of revenue is derived from commercial clients. The company has standard systems for managing client relationships and service. The team includes three IT support technicians and a service coordinator, uh, two of whom have been with the company since before the current seller acquired the company in 2008. So that's interesting. This guy bought it in 2008, and it's been around since even before that uh, with some of the same team. The IT specialists have varying levels of expertise from high-level architecture and network security to hardware installation and troubleshooting. They have optimized their service offerings to best serve the client needs while aligning with company profitability, blah, blah, blah. It may, ooh, it maintains a well-situated storefront with signage prominently displaying services. An operator interested in shifting to a work-from-home environment could further reduce fixed expenses. I love how they talk out of both sides of their mouth. They're like, the signage is fantastic in a prominent location, but also you could save a bunch of money if you bailed on all that. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Well, that is the most classic broker sentence maybe I've ever read. Yeah. 
think so. It's for employee. Yeah, I think the rest of this stuff is mostly uh, BS, is broker BS. Mm-hmm. Um, with your vision and strategic direction, you can unlock mm-hmm. even greater value and take it to new heights. The possibilities are limitless. Um, and it says the seller will stick around for a little bit because he cares deeply uh, and will help you out. Um, it's in Overland Park, Kansas, four employees. Uh, the location with signage is 2,000 square feet. Um, and there are some opportunities to extend the lease, apparently, if you think this is really important to you. Um, and that's all we got. Reason for selling retirement. What do you think, Heather? All right. Well, I do generally like MSPs and I have lent on a few. I have a few clients and I keep in touch with them. It can be a great space. I'm not too excited about this one. Um, <laughs> this one has, yeah. it's, <laughs> it's got some Heather, good you're on the pod for like two months and you catch gargliitis where you just poop on it at the very beginning. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't have started that way. There are things I do like. I do like, let's go there. Let's be positive. I do like 75% contractually recurring revenue. Uh, for you know, example, a, a good MSP has about 50 to 60% contract contracts. So this one has 75, that's above the average, you know, that's above a good one. So it's kind of in the higher tier there. Um, there's even a trade association, and I'm far, I'm going to forget the name because they actually changed it. But there's a trade association for MSPs, and they actually have something called an operational maturity score. And this is one of the factors in their score, of course, is what percentage of revenue is contracts. Now, usually an MSP, the contracts are only one year. So they're not like their long-term contracts, but at least they've gotten to a point where their clients are willing to sign on with them for a year. You know, it's it's probably, this business is probably serving small small businesses um, as sort of their outsourced IT. There are, you know, many flavors of MSP um, and the best ones kind of focus on a particular niche. So if it's just kind of generic small business MSP, that's not so great. There's kind of, you know, low barriers to entry that you, you really don't have a moat, and um, it would be easy for you to lose those contracts upon renewal to somebody else for better pricing or some other kind of service. Um, so you'd really want to know with this one, do they have a niche or is their niche just serving small businesses? I would think if they had one, it would have been highlighted here. But, you know, broker might have missed that. Um, is so it important it, to have a yeah, niche? Why? Because if you're generic, anybody can compete with you. I would think in some ways generic is a little bit more diversified. Like if you're doing healthcare and healthcare craps the bed, you're in trouble. How do you think well, about that? It's double-sided for sure. Like there are risks to being niche and there are, there are positives about it. Um, so niche doesn't necessarily mean you're focusing on an industry. With MSPs, I've seen them where they focus on a particular product or a telephone system or a particular software um, which that is risky too, right? That software, we've looked at some before where we said no, because if this, you know, software changes so rapidly and, and, the, and the cycle of, you know, um, innovation there is just so rapid, you'd be afraid that, that that becomes obsolete too quickly. So yes, there's there's good and bad news to the, to the niche side of it. Um, but I think if you're just a generic providing kind of basic services to small businesses, there's just not much of a moat and there's bigger companies that could come along and take away your customers Either that or you're, you're not going to get the best customers. You're going to get the lower quality customers that kind of fall out of those bigger uh, operations. So I, I, I prefer some kind of niche um, as opposed to none. And you kind of need the niche also to know whether you can grow this. And if I'm a buyer rather than a lender, I'm thinking, 
what are my opportunities to grow? It's been there for a long time. A long, that's really, this is really an old one, actually. Bought yeah. it in 2008. So I wonder when it was founded. That That's older than most that I see. Most that I see are about 14. Yeah, I guess this is about right. But we don't know how old before 2008. They're about 14 years old usually. Um, and most of the time, the ones that I'm seeing, the sellers aren't really the retirement age that you t- tend to think of. They're a little bit younger but they're super burned out. And that tells you something mm-hmm. too, <laughs> because yeah. they're super burned out because technology uh, cycles are so rapid and it takes a lot to keep up with them and run a business like this. So they yeah. can be really good companies, but it's a lot of work. All right, taking a quick pause here. I have something to tell you. This is Michael. I hate bookkeeping. I hate bookkeeping. I hate doing HR. I hate doing all that kind of stuff. Uh, but for bookkeeping, I have found a solution. It is um, my friend Charlie's business called cloudbookkeeping.com. So that's cloudbookkeeping.com. Uh, they are your perfect partner if you want to get bookkeeping out of your hair and focus on making your company, cu- your customers happier and more successful. So um, please give them a call. Call Charlie, cloudbookkeeping.com. Tell them we sent you. Uh, they're a great way if you're a business buyer, if you're a business owner, you're tired of hassling uh, with getting your bookkeeping done. He's got a whole fleet of people that are well-trained and work for him. Uh, he's located here in San Antonio. So I can tell you because of that, he's awesome. And uh, they're a great partner for you to potentially call to help with all your bookkeeping needs so you can do the important stuff in your business uh, rather than worry about getting your books right. So uh, give Charlie a call, cloudbookkeeping.com. And now back to the episode. Yeah, because I guess a lot, not a lot of, you know, 50-year-olds are starting MSPs, running them for 15 years until they're 65 and wanting to retire, right? So a lot of times retire is code for I'm 45 and I'm fried. Yeah, in this industry, you see it much more often, or I'm going to go do something else. A lot of times it'll be technology related, like I have a kind of a pet project in technology that I want to go develop this software or something, Uh, but they'll be like in their late 40s or early 50s and just tired, you know? Um, so the the interesting thing there, there is sort of a roll up play going on in this industry where, you know, if you can get to a certain size, um, the multiples are, are much, much better. Um, but it's a lot of work to get to that size. And, and there's potentially, there's some CapEx here, depending on how you do things. Some, um, some companies, they make their customers buy the servers and the, the, various types of hardware that the business needs to run on. And I've seen some where they buy the servers and charge them out at a premium to their customers. So whenever I look at MSP, I kind of want to know which one they are. You know, are you yeah. are you buying the servers and owning them? That's a different game, maybe a little more risky. It can be more profitable too, but it can be more risky. And I had someone, uh, I asked a, a, a Q of E provider once uh, who had done a lot of these. And I said, and they actually owned one too with, uh, they were a part owner in one. I said, what's the, like the number one thing that you, you kind of catch in there. And he said, you know, if, if you ask them for an equipment list and with locations and they can't tell you where all the equipment is, then that's a red flag. Oh yeah. <laughs> like he no, know not, where they, you got, they didn't know where if you're in the business of managing assets, you need good ma- asset management software. Well, yes. And I think that's the thing with a lot of businesses that they don't maybe consider themselves in the business of asset management. And then they end up having a bunch of equipment assets 
and they don't have the management behind it. So anyway, that I thought that was an interesting little tidbit is if they do own a bunch of servers, where are they all? One thing I noticed about this one is it's got four people, right? So it's not a big business from a human capital point of view. Uh, but most of these guys have been there for 15 years. Now, talk about retirement age, right? Like this is really good and really bad, right? You've probably got some really long tenured clients who have been used to having their same IT guy for 15 years. When that IT guy retires, right, they probably got more loyalty to Joe than they do to the MSP. So if Joe leaves, you're going to probably have, like, you've got a business existential thing going on here that you've got to transition Joe's relationship to some new IT guy uh, because there's probably not a lot of uh, loyalty to your brand name. It's probably loyalty to Joe. Uh, So you're going to, you got churn risk there, right? Yeah, I think you're probably right. And it it goes to a question that uh, I ask um, in any kind of service business, who owns the customer relationships? Um, A lot of times it is the employees. Uh, and, and it's one of those questions that like, you know, the sellers are probably going to tell you it's, th- it's them, it's the seller uh, or maybe a, a GM or something. But um, sometimes it's worth a few more questions around that. And I have seen a deal that actually uh, fell apart after close because the employees owned the relationship. A competitor uh, hired those employees and brought all the customers with them. And of course, the employees were not under a non-compete. And that's like your worst case scenario, but it does once in a while happen that way. Yeah. Yeah. I just, it's just, it's it's this double-edged sword. Like, yeah, these guys have been there forever. So like you come in and they were there 14 years ago when new guy came in, they might go, I'm done with this. Like another, Mm -hmm. another guy who doesn't know Jack, I've been here for 1700 years and know everything, you know, like you just might have a problem. Like I would want to meet all those people before buying this business, not on the first day after close. Hi, I'm your new boss. I think that's true with a lot of businesses that you should be able to meet the employees before you close. And I have seen some of my buyers walk away because the seller refused. Just on that point alone, everything else looked good. But if they're, you're refusing that, this is not the deal for me. I think that's smart. Uh, so I want to meet them. It's touchy though, right? I mean, because before you close, you can still walk, right? And if you bring buyer in to meet all of your employees and like that's when you have to tell them I'm thinking about selling the company, right? Or I am selling the company. And usually you don't want to do that until the money is in the bank and the ink is dry and then it becomes buyer's risk. But like, I mean, that's the type of news, by the way, that spreads like wildfire through the rumor mill of a company, right? Like even if you only have them meet with two key employees, the odds that that gets out are near 100%. Yeah, I, I hear you. And it's very true. Like it, it, some some sellers are going to play it very close to the vest, uh, trying to protect that the, 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 the fact that they're trying to sell the business. I subscribe to this uh, notion that there are no secrets in any business. Uh, even when you think that you are keeping it a secret, somebody knows, you know, somebody that's helping you put the documents together for diligence or, you know, talking to your your lawyer or whoever uh, is assisting you with this or the broker. Um, So I kind of go with the, everybody knows anyway, like most likely. You think in a small business, like like in this one, there's five people, owner decides to sell it. You think people still going to figure it out? Yeah. Yeah. By reading it on BizBuySell and... (laughs) 
or listening, <laughs> listening to, this. to our podcast. <laughs> yeah, possibly. But I, you know, even this alone, yeah, the fact that it has to be listed and everything else, I just, I just think that uh, you know, the, the reality is, and also if it, if it is truly because of uh, retirement, I don't believe the seller never said anything to his employees about retirement ever. Uh, or that they never, you know, they didn't look at their age or anything else and kind of suspect that that was, so I, I don't know, I just give people more credit. You know, they, they probably already kind of know, and it's better to, at that point, when you think you have a good buyer, try to make it all work for everybody than to hide it. Cause I have seen sellers just kind of blow the whole deal over this like uh, really extreme secrecy um, to the mm-hmm. point of, you know, it, it kind of blew up the deal. It, there just comes a point where you kind of have to, trust that people people will get this done but that's me i'm not a seller Let, let's come back to this this deal and valuation here so they're asking for it's msp high level of contractual recurring revenue it's not that big two hundred forty-two thousand dollars of cash flow they want 3x in your experience is that in the ballpark for an msp is it high is it low well when you say 3x that's 3x cash flow, which I'm saying probably is SDE, they're adding back like only $120,000 salary. You need that $120,000 to live off of if you're buying this, you're going to run it. So again, I've said this before, and I I got, I think I got in trouble with Michael (laughs) for saying, I don't like SDE. I don't like pricing (laughs) off of SDE. The smaller the business, the less I like it. So good job. 120, it's six times. Uh, no, it is not worth six times. It's way too, it, this is probably this price is set by this seller's expectations for retirement funds, you know, rather than reality. And this contractual recurring revenue, this is not like software subscriptions uh, with super high margins. This has still got a lot of costs behind those contracts. So, and they, again, I, I would suspect from what I know, they're one-year contracts. So it's not like you should price it that way, like you would software or something else. So uh, this is probably three times the 120. This is a 360. This is, so this is overpriced by double. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mm-hmm. honestly, I agree. I, I'm on Team Heather for SDE. I think SDE... Small business acquisitions, I have two things that I think are totally whack about small business acquisitions. One of them is SDE. Uh, The other one is plus inventory for inventory-based businesses, where like working capital is not a thing. And I've I've definitely done that rant on this podcast before about how it totally misaligns incentives. You know, it's just totally whack. You know, I've seen businesses that are for sale for a million dollars and they have a million dollars of inventory and it's like psych it's two million dollars and now it's eight times or something and it doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. um so uh, this is tough and i think you're probably right you've got 120k of actual free cash flow and then you got one hundred twenty thousand dollars of owner salary which gets you to ebitda or to, mm-hmm. to sd or whatever and that's what they're trying to value on yeah that being said it's the way the cookie crumbles in this market a lot of times right yeah I think if you went to this broker and you were like $300,000, he would say, sorry, not interested. Right. Probably. Well, I don't know how long this has been out there, but yeah, that's all this is worth. Uh, it's it's not worth more than that. And and I, I don't think they'll get that. The other, My other little rant about SDE is why would you pay three times or four times or anything a salary for a job? Would you do that? Would you pay four times a salary and go take a job and work for four years for free? No. Right, right. You know, like- <laughs> Great point. Like, <laughs> And on the flip so, side, 
So amen, but also on the flip side, why would you sell for an EBITDA number? So like, let's take this business, right? Like this guy is making SDE $242,000 a year, right? If you value it at three times EBITDA, you would pay $360,000 for this business, which he will make in 18 months just running this business, right? So like this, this sort of illustrates like the gulf in small business acquisitions is that it's very hard to find a price that is enough, it is low enough for a buyer and also high enough to motivate a seller. Because it, this, especially when this SDE to EBITDA gap gets really big on smaller businesses, this guy's just better off going to the beach for 18 months and hoping the business doesn't collapse, right? Right, but he probably can't go to the beach is my thought on this kind of business. He's working He's working for that $120,000 and he probably is selling just because he wants to go to the beach. And he can't. Yeah, I just, if I'm the seller on this one and the best offer I've got is... 16 months of salary or something, I'm throwing a Hail Mary. I'm going, Joe, you're in charge. I'm I'm improving increasing your salary $125,000 a year. I'll see you guys in 16 months if the building's not on fire. Like that's probably <laughs> the Hail Mary I'm throwing if I'm the seller and my best offer is 300k. Yeah. 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 Okay, fair enough. It's tough. Yeah. All right. Anything else on this one? Nope, I'm not buying it. Are you? Uh, it's just too small. It's too small and the SD EBITDA thing. I mean, otherwise, like MSP with high contracted revenue, Can not terrible. Nice. Yeah. Right? Um, I just, this one has some warts on it that are tough for me. Yep. Agreed. All right. We'll wrap this one up. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you guys on the next episode of Acquisitions Anonymous.